1: Welcome to Dress the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. This is Cassidy Zachary, fashion historian, and your only host for today's episode, as it is now my co-host extraordinaire April's turn to take a well-deserved break. She will be back soon. So today we are super excited to bring you an episode on one of fashion history's great style icons, Tina Chow. And Tina became a well-known figure on the fashion and social scene throughout the 70s and 80s as a muse, patron, and friend to designers such as Karl Lagerfeld, Giorgio Armani, Yves Saint Laurent and artists, including Andy Warhol, Cecil Beaton, Robert Mablethorpe, the list goes on. And she was so much more than a pretty face. Tina herself was a creative force as a jewelry designer. She was also a vintage fashion collector. She amassed this incredible 500-piece collection that comprised some of the most formidable names in fashion history, including Fortuny, Poiret, Vionnet, So just who was this beguiling beauty who continues to captivate audiences 30 years after her untimely death? To answer that question, I am so pleased to welcome today's guest, Faith Cooper, a fellow FIT alum and fashion historian who specializes in the cultural relationship between the East and the West. I was first introduced to Faith's work via the Asian Fashion Archive. She is the founder of this wonderful digital resource project that is committed to highlighting Asian fashion, culture, and history. Tina Chow is, of course, part of that legacy, and I'm so pleased to welcome Faith to the show to talk about that today. Welcome, Faith. Faith, welcome to
2: Dressed. Hi, Cassidy. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you today. We're going to talk to you about Tina Chow, and then Thursday, our listeners can tune in and hear all about your fabulous Asian Fashion Archive But yeah, so Tina, such a popular figure, fashion and style icon. So many people probably have seen images of her or know of her, but maybe not so many know about the details of her life and her, you know, incredible accomplishments in so many different facets of the fashion and jewelry industry and pop culture in general. But I love if we could just kind of start at the beginning what insights can you share about Tina's early life and formative years, starting with perhaps the who, what, when of how her parents met?
2: Yeah. Um, so not much has been published on Tina Chow's personal life, but through my research, I managed to find some details. And Tina Chow was born Bettina Lutz on April 18th, 1950. She was born in Ohio Her father is American. His name was Walter Edmund Lutch, and he met her mother, Monomiwako, in Japan. Um, Her father was stationed in Japan during and post-World War II, and they met on a ski slope on Christmas Day in 1945. And they later moved to the United States and got married in 1947. Tina also had an older sister, Adele Lutz, who is now an artist and designer. But a few years after the family were settled in Ohio, the US Army actually produced a dramatized film based on the Lutz family. And you can actually watch it free on YouTube. It was made in 1952. It's called Japanese Bride in America. And it's a really interesting short film detailing the hardships of being an interracial couple in the United States post-World War II, specifically with an American father and a Japanese mother. But Tina's father had a huge passion for bamboo, and her mother also had a passion for the arts. And they actually opened a bamboo goods store in Ohio called Bamboo (laughs) House. Yeah, most people wouldn't expect to see that in Ohio in the... 1950s, but they did it and it's actually featured in the, the documentary. But um, Tina is biracial and she has been quoted saying that she struggled with her biracial identity going up. And there's a really touching quote where she says, you know, the the only problem was that I wasn't all American. And there was no alternative to being All-American. Everyone was a cheerleader or aspired to be one. I never went on a date, was never asked out, was never asked to dance, Um, which is pretty incredible because we think of her as, you know, this huge social and beautiful figure. But in 1966, she was 16 years old and the Letts family moved to Japan. And Tina said it was like they were going back to where they belonged and she loved it and she did quite well for herself in Japan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say too we Dress listeners will absolutely put a link to that YouTube video you were just talking about because that sounds like something we all wanna watch for sure. So in Japan, things really start to happen for Tina and it's probably kind of like night and day from what you were just describing of her early teenage years in Ohio. So i love if you can tell us about Tina's introduction to the fashion industry, which actually began with her modeling career in Japan in the 1960s, which is so exciting.
2: Yeah. Um. So both Tina and her sisters began modeling when they moved to Japan. And apparently they were discovered during a summer vacation there. And their mother was their agent. And Tina actually attributed their success to their biracial background. She said they really liked that look in Japan, these Japanese fashion and cosmetic companies. And the both sisters started working for the Japanese cosmetic company, Shiseido doing both print and video ads in 1968. And you can actually find videos of their ads too. And they're super cute and bubbly and very 1960s and colorful. But she also, Tina Chow also did runway work and she became friends with a young designer who we know as Zimiyaki. Um, And he noted that when he was working with Tina, that he noticed that she had a special interest in the spirit of the actual clothes and actually I learned later on in the 80s she apparently was in talks with him to try to open a boutique of his in New York but that specific deal fell through but of course he would end up becoming the designer we know today but um, while she was in a model in Japan she also became very close with a model that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with Marie Helvin. Was also American and also half Japanese. And she had said that Tina and her family really helped her in Japan because she was very lost as an American and her and Tina became very close. And another big figure in her life who she met in 1970 was the illustrator Antonio Lopez. He was working in Japan and Tina was his model. And he actually, apparently, was the one who introduced Tina Chow to. Carl Lagerfeld when they were out in Paris together. So a lot of different figures we <laughs> met in that time. She
1: must have known Pat Cleveland too then, because Pat, who we recently had on the show, also in Paris in the 1970s, also knew Antonio Lopez and Karl Lagerfeld. So it's cool to see the intersections of all these people. And what an exciting time to imagine.
2: Small world. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So it was one of her fashion connections that led her to meet her future husband, restaurateur, Michael Chow. That sounds familiar. Tina Chow, Michael Chow. Maybe we're putting, (laughs) connecting the dots. How did they meet and in what ways did their relationship inform the next chapter of her life and career?
2: Yeah, so um, Michael Chow is a famous restaurateur and founder of a very famous restaurant, Mr. Chow, an upscale and hip restaurant. And when they met, he just had the London location, but he created Mr. Chow because he wanted this special social scene that would bridge together the East and the West. And it was described as the hub of the visual pop chic fashion art world. But apparently, Antonio Lopez was the one that wanted to put, set them up together, but it fell through. But she had another opportunity through British designer Xander Rhodes who was in Japan for a fashion show. And Michael Chow was in Japan because he was there to make a movie. So Sandra Rhodes set them up together. and They went sightseeing in Japan and they met at a Buddhist temple. But similar um, to Tina, Michael had an interesting background with both the East and the West. He was born in Shanghai and educated in London. His father was a very famous Chinese opera performer. And actually, even though he's known for um, Mr. Chow's restaurants, he wanted to be an actor. So he was friends with these fashion and art social circles. And a fun fact, he was once married to Grace Coddington of Vogue before marrying Tina Chow. And Grace Coddington stayed close with both of them. And in her memoir, Grace Coddington actually says that she used to wear Yves Saint Laurent to try and impress Tina Chow. (laughs) But before, um, but around meeting Michael around that time, Tina started to notice a social turn in the fashion industry in Japan. And she noted that they, for some reason, weren't interested in biracial models anymore. And Tina Chow said she didn't know if it was, she was living a trivial existence or if she was disappointed in love, but she wanted, you know, a fresh start. So Tina Chow moved to London in 1972, and she got married to Michael, and they had this big wedding party. Um, Bianca Jagger and Tatum O'Neill, who was nine years old at the time, were there. Manolo Blahnik took photographs, and then Tina became the hostess and sort of ambassador of Mr. Chow. And they had two children together, China and Maximilian Chow. And as many um, of your listeners, I'm sure they know, the restaurant is and was and still is super popular with A-list figures. Jerry Hall was um, a regular, Palomo Picasso, Iman, Andre Leon Leontali. Um, there's a funny anecdote where Jackie Onassis made a reservation to come in with a friend and Tina took the booking and she decided to cancel all the other reva- reservations at that time out of respect. So Jackie Onassis could have some privacy. And when Jackie Onassis was eating with her friend, she made a comment saying, you know, it's it's very pretty and the food is delicious, but are they doing well? <laughs> you know, and they had this reservation list for the restaurant. Um, and apparently if they had a star by your name, it meant you were famous. And if you had a heart, you were their friend. But because of the success of Mr. Chow in London, they opened locations in Beverly Hills, and New York. So the family were quite world travelers. Yeah, and
1: Tino was pretty instrumental, right? And creating that culture, right? That became, you know, that really made Mr. Chow this, like, international destination for, like, anybody who was anyone at this time, right?
2: Yeah, and since Michael Chow was already part of these art and fashion circles, she also learned, had a lot of artist friends, through Mr. Chow, like Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol, Keith Haring. Apparently, Basquiat would trade his artwork to pay for his food and drink tab at Mr. Chow. But the couple bought his work before he became really big. Um, Andy Warhol also did their portraits. Basquiat did their portraits. Um, So there were many celebrities that she met through Mr. Chow.
1: of course, herself becomes a celebrity. She becomes a really well-known figure on the fashion and social scene throughout the 70s and 80s. You've talked about some of the artists that she knew, but she also became a muse and friend to people like Karl Lagerfeld, Giorgio Armani, Yves Saint Laurent, and, you know, these various artists, including Robert Mapplethorpe. Um, Cecil Beaton, and of course you mentioned Basquiat and Andy Warhol. Can you tell us a little bit more about these relationships that she cultivated with some of these big be- people? Because these are like the most renowned t- tastemakers of this decade, and she was, of course, friends with all of them.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um. So she was photographed by some of the most major twentieth-century photographers, like Cecil Beaton, David Bailey, Helmut Newton, Robert Mablethorpe, You know all the ones that you said, and in these. Photographs of her, she'd often be wearing pieces from her famous fashion collection. But many designers have commented on her unique beauty and style, as well as her kind and generous personality. Um, Perry Ellis described her as the modern woman. Karl Lagerfeld described her as the center of everything. And apparently, she once shared a story that Karl Lagerfeld found an original Gabrielle Chanel dress in a trunk, and he made a copy of it just for Tina Chow. And in 1975, Adele Rudstein also created a mannequin inspired by Tina. So she had a lot of different professional relationships that also were close friendships as well. She definitely benefited from, I'm definitely jealous, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she sounds like a very enchanting woman. Anyone who met her probably fell in love with her or became enamored with her the very least. So we you talked about her fashion collection which we will get to absolutely because it's an incredible story about how that started and where it went from there, but first I want to talk about her jewelry design. The Vogue writer Joan Juliet Buck described Tina's style in the magazine. She said her choices are bound to an unusual amalgam of qualities, one not normally associated with what you'd call fashionable women. They are respect for craft, for the past, for things in themselves, for the talent of others, and most of all, enormous generosity, tact, and diplomacy. So this appreciation for craftsmanship really translated into the production of her own jewelry line in the 1980s. Can you tell us about the inspiration behind her foray into jewelry design and how she incorporated her various interests and passions in craftsmanship, but she also incorporated you know her philosophies surrounding buddhism and the healing power of crystals into her designs. So this is not necessarily something that was a commercial venture for her. It had a lot of meaning behind it.
2: Yeah. So apparently her love of art and craftsmanship came from her parents. Her father was an avid bamboo collector and actually his collection now is belongs to the Denver Art Museum and her mother was the head of a Tokyo chapter of Japanese flower arranging. And so Tina kind of followed these passions, and she really enjoyed making things. She would make dry flower arrangements as a form of relaxation for herself, and then she would give them out to friends. She was supposed to do a collaboration with Francois Lesage, who was the heir to the French embroidery house, and they were supposed supposed to make embroidered opera coats and cuffs, but unfortunately it fell through. But in around 1985, she moved to Los Angeles, and that time, that's when she started to develop an interest in holistic healing, Buddhism, and crystals. And she started going to parties last, and she did these explorations in India and Tibet. Andy Warhol also wrote in his diary about Tina getting her crystals around this time, It seemed like she was on this spiritual search. She also met the Dalai Lama, who kind of guided her on some matters. But during this time, the mid-80s, she wanted to have a project of her own. So she created her own jewelry line. And she started out trying to find, you know, people to help her with these designs. So she was in Kyoto in 1986 with her mother. And she met a master tea ceremony basket maker. Who helped her with her designs? She also worked with the gemologist in Los Angeles, Lynn Nakamura, to help incorporate crystals in her work. And so the finished products involved black bamboo, precious crystals. They were described as caught treasures in baskets. Tina referred to them as personal amulets and power pieces. And she thought of these pieces as ways that um, could heal and cleanse you and remove negative and chaotic energy. So in the fall of 1987, the line was first shown at Bergdorf Goodman in New York, and then then it moved to Los Angeles, Chicago, Paris, and a lot of different publications featured these pieces, especially fashion magazines. Um, She did a collaboration with Calvin Klein for his 1988 collection. She also starred in a Gap campaign in 1989 wearing her jewelry. And there, one of her most famous pieces in the storyline was the Kyoto bracelet. And it was a bracelet of bamboo holding crystal pebbles inside. There was the Miwako pendant, which back then cost about $1,500. Now it's worth a lot more. There was the temple quartz ring, which cost around 550 and it was said to zap people with good energy. Um, one of my favorite necklaces is a specific necklace that it's supposed to work as a portable self-renewal system, and it's 33 inches in length when disassembled, so when somebody wears it and they meditate, the stones are going to cover all seven of your chakras. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but Tina put a lot of thought into these pieces as well as the packaging. The The pieces were in signed, handmade Japanese mulberry paper boxes, pouches, and with a handwritten note. Um, one of them read, treat this with love, wear this with care. And along with jewelry, she would later develop new age aromic massage oils and then started working with wood. So she definitely had a creative side to her, not just fashion.
1: Absolutely. But she did have a passion for fashion. And I think you can see her appreciation for craftsmanship actually translate into this passion for fashion because she collected vintage fashion and eventually amassed, as you kind of referenced earlier, this collection of over 500 pieces that's really comprised of the most formidable names in fashion history. So, you know... Fortuny, Poiret, Viennay, Balenciaga, the list probably goes on. But you can tell us a little bit more, hopefully, about this collection and maybe just what sparked her interest in collecting in the first place.
2: Yeah, um, Chow was, I would say, a, a pioneer in collecting designers like that. Um, not many people were doing it back then, but the collection really started when her husband, he bought a pink Fortuny gown at an auction and gave it to her. And the dress was in poor condition, but that is supposedly sparked her interest in starting this collection. And it was supposedly 500 pieces um, of Vionnet, Paul Perret, Chanel, a lot of Balenciaga, Steparelli. and she would buy these pieces at thrift shops, auction houses, markets around the world. And she said she liked these older pieces because she thought present fashion was just too confusing but she also made sure to take special care of them and she would wrap them in acid-free tissue. But apparently as part of this collection, she had 50 to 80 Fortuny pieces and she referred to them as she. And to preserve the pleats of the Fortuny dresses, she would twist and roll them. Um, And she also made a note once saying, don't worry, I don't dry my Fortuny dresses, but she would send them to a curator at the V&A for conservation. But one funny story is she was out partying one day, and I think she was afraid she was going to ruin her Fortuny dress that she had been wearing. So at one in the morning, she just took off the dress and twisted it and turned it into a necklace and just wore <laughs> it like that the rest of the night. But she, as part of the collection, she collected many famous fashion pieces that were are very important pieces to fashion history. A lot of Balenciaga, including a 1957 Balenciaga baby doll dress. One suit that is noted from the personal collection of Gabrielle Chanel is an evening suit of white sequins, what, Yves Saint Laurent's suits, including a Reeve Gauche safari suit from 1970, another smoking suit, Yves Saint Laurent for Dior trapeze dresses, Lanvin robe de steel dresses, Vionnet 1980s evening gowns, Charles James. She loved Karl Lagerfeld for Chanel as well, um, who was a friend of hers. So she didn't just collect older designers, but she also loved to wear Kenzo pants and Izumiyaki. She wore a lot of Manolo Blahnik shoes, as well as she was known for wearing her Hanes white t-shirts. Right. So that that blending of the
1: high and the low to create what ultimately is this really unique singular style that she's so
3: renowned for. Yes, definitely. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting
1: on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android So some of the most iconic pieces in Tina's collection are today housed in the collection of the museum at FIT in New York. Uh, The same museum with which she partnered in the 1990s, working with fashion curators Richard Martin, Harold Cota on the exhibition Flair Fashion Collected by Tina Chow. Can you please tell us about the exhibition and Tina's role in making it come to life?
2: So apparently in the mid-1980s, Tina began reflecting on her fashion collection and the importance of it. So she proposed an exhibition to FIT and the Kyoto Costume Institute to display her pieces for the public to see. And she worked with curators, Richard Martin and Harold Koda, as well as an executive at Izzy Miyake. Um, but she was very adamant and said, I, she does not want the exhibition's focus to be on her, but on the clothes. And there was also a book published and coincide with the exhibition published by Rizzoli. And she urged the publishers to make sure to include patterns of the garments so others can learn about the master designer's use of construction. And when there's a preface in the book and she has an incredibly honest quote, where she says, in all honesty, I know now that vanity and self absorption were also cornerstones on which the accumulation of this collection was based. Therefore, I am grateful for this opportunity to have the collection come before the public so that others may share in this artistry and beauty of the pieces which came from the souls that created them with love." So you can tell she was incredibly humble, but still expressing her love for art and beauty and fashion. That the FIT exhibition was titled Flair Fashion Collected by Tina Chow, and it opened in March 17, 1992, and it had 54 garments, including Alaya, Vionnet, Lanvin. Richard Martin and Harold Cota said when they were designing the exhibition space, they wanted it to be a contemplative space without melancholy all morning because during this exhibition process, Tina was quite sick. So their inspiration concept for the space was a Zen garden. So if you look at photos of the exhibition, you can get that um, feel for it. But the museum at FIT still does have, still have some of her pieces, including a beautiful silk and velvet late 1930s Balenciaga evening dress. And one of my favorite museum and FIT garments, the famous Black Evening Dress, Karl Lagerfeld for Chanel with the Lesage jewelry um, from 1983 and, and um, a Le Smoking Yves Saint Laurent suit. And then after the FIT exhibition um, opened in 1992, later that year, it opened at, in Kyoto at the Kyoto Costume Institute.
1: Yeah, and I was even alluded to it, but I was so sad to learn that Tina did not actually live to see the exhibition. As you mentioned, it opened in March 1992. She actually passed away from complications with HIV in January of that same time. I mean, this is the era when that disease was running rampant and just took so many people far, far too soon. Can you provide some insights into the last years of Tina's life?
2: There's a very eerie quote that she said in 1989. And she's talking to the New York Times and she's saying that she lost a lot of friends to HIV AIDS and she felt her life was slipping away while she was out partying. So she um, changes lifestyles and stops drinking. She says that the, these deaths has had a huge impact on the fashion industry and many people are just paying more attention to just sticking around. And um, right before she said that her close friend, Antonia Lopez passed away. And she actually helped nurse him while he was sick. And Michael Chow um, apparently helped him pay his medical bills. So she um, helped raise funds and awareness for the AIDS crisis trust in the UK. And then tragically, she was diagnosed with AIDS, but she still continued to stay professionally active. She also worked with Angel Food, an organization that delivered food to patients suffering from HIV AIDS. She also endorsed an HIV AIDS hospice in Mexico and gave permission for them to use her name. And it was going to be called Tina's House Hospice Project. And it was going to be directed by her caregiver, Elena Lopez. And Tina was um, vocal about her health status, which was rare, especially for a woman at that time. And she is known for being one of the first prominent women to die from complications of AIDS. And she did pass away on January 24th, 1992, so 30 years ago, with her family by her side. And she was living um, on the coast of California. And actually, when I purchased her exhibition book, I found a note that slipped out. And it mentions that Tina has passed on peacefully at her home, Due to complications of acquired immune deficiency syndrome, and it lists three different charities. She asked if the people wanted to make a donation in her name, and they were the Tibet Fund, Tina's House Hospice Project, and the Macrobiotic Association of Connecticut. But um, the following year, after she passed in September, Christie's had an auction with one hundred of her pieces, and they it totaled over two hundred thousand dollars. And proceeds were to go to Tina's house, on um, the hospice that was supposed to happen in Mexico.
1: Wow. So I'd love if we could talk about Tina's legacy today, because honestly, before knowing that you, you've done research on her, I really couldn't find anything else out there really about her. There's, of course, the FIT exhibition catalog, but no one's really dedicated, you know, like a monolith to this incredible woman. Um, And I'm sure there's just so much more to uncover and learn about her life and legacy. But what do you think her legacy is today?
2: Yeah, um, there really are only two books, which is her Christie's catalog and the exhibition books, but they really don't have much mention of her. So the way I did the research was through different articles written about her, what anecdotes of what people have said about her. And I think when people first think of Tina Chow, at least those who did not know her, you know, they think of her beauty and style, you know, her short hair and her beautiful clothes. But I wish people talked more about her strength, because it seemed like she had a lot of it. And she expressed it in so many different ways. You know, like with her jewelry, combining her love of beauty and her wish for healing, and as well as to heal others. And one of my favorite quotes from her is, um, you have to take ultimate responsibility to bring beauty into this world. You have either to bring beauty or ugliness, and you're not allowed to bring ugliness. So I, I do hope more people, you know, start talking more about Tina Chow so we can all learn more, because she was an incredible person and an important figure in fashion history so um, doing the research was very interesting I learned a lot but I wish I could learn more too
1: Yeah. Well, this was a, I'm sure, incredibly illuminating to a lot of our listeners. It certainly was to me as someone who has appreciated her as a style icon, but didn't know much about her life and all of these wonderful accomplishments. And then her just beautiful philosophy that she injected in her designs and the way she lived. So thank you, Faith, for joining us and for sharing that with us all today.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider Tina Chow's legacy next time you get dressed. Be sure and join us Thursday for another episode with Faith, where this time we discuss her work on the groundbreaking Asian fashion archive, her digital resource project committed to highlighting Asian fashion culture and history. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at Just Underscore Podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at Just at iHeartMedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows